Chapter Twenty Two of Plain Tales from the Hills. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. Plain Tales from the Hills by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter Twenty Two A Bank Fraud. He drank strong waters and his speech was coarse. He purchased raiment and forbore to pay. He struck a trusting junior with a horse, and won Gymkhana's in a doubtful way. Then, twixt a vice and folly, turned aside to do good deeds, and straight to cloak them, lied. From the Messroom If Reggie Burke were in India now, he would resent this tale being told, but as he's in Hong Kong and won't see it, the telling is safe. He was the man who worked the big fraud on the Sind and Sealcoat Bank. He was manager of an upcountry branch and a sound practical man with a large experience of native loan and insurance work. He could combine the frivolities of ordinary life with his work, and yet do well. Reggie Burke rode anything that would let him get up, danced as neatly as he rode, and was wanted for every sort of amusement in the station. As he said himself, and as many men found out rather to their surprise, there were two Burkes, both very much at your service. Reggie Burke, between four and ten, ready for anything from a hot-weather gymkhana to a riding picnic, and between ten and four, Mr. Reginald Burke, manager of the Sind and Sealcoat Branch Bank. You might play polo with him one afternoon and hear him express his opinions when a man crossed, and you might call on him next morning to raise a two-thousand-rupee loan on a five-hundred-pound insurance policy, eighty pounds paid in premiums. He would recognize you but you would have some trouble in recognizing him. The directors of the bank—it had its headquarters in Calcutta, and its general manager's word carried weight with the government—picked their men well. They tested Reggie up to a fairly severe breaking strain. They trusted him just as much as directors ever trust managers. You must see for yourself whether their trust was misplaced. Reggie's branch was in a big station, and worked with the usual staff. One manager, one accountant, both English, a cashier, and a horde of native clerks, besides the police patrol at nights outside. The bulk of its work, for it was in a thriving district, was hundi and accommodation of all kinds. A fool has no grip of this sort of business, and a clever man who does not go about among his clients, and no more than a little of their affairs, is worse than a fool. Reggie was young-looking, clean-shaved, with a twinkle in his eye, and a head that nothing short of a gallon of the gunner's Madeira could make any impression on. One day at a big dinner he announced casually that the directors had shifted on to him a natural curiosity from England in the accountant line. He was perfectly correct. Mr. Silas Riley, accountant, was a most curious animal, a long, gawky, raw-boned Yorkshireman, full of the savage self-conceit that blossoms only in the best county in England. Arrogance was a mild word for the mental attitude of Mr. S. Riley. He had worked himself up after seven years to a cashier's position in a Huddlesfield bank, and all his experience lay among the factories of the North. Perhaps he would have done better on the Bombay side where they are happy with one-half percent profits, and money is cheap. He was useless for Upper India and a wheat province, where a man wants a large head and a touch of imagination if he is to turn out a satisfactory balance sheet and he was wonderfully narrow-minded in business, and being new to the country had no notion that Indian banking is totally distinct from home work. 
Like most clever self-made men, he had much simplicity in his nature, and somehow or another had construed the ordinarily polite terms of his letter of engagement into a belief that the directors had chosen him on account of his special and brilliant talents, and that they set great store by him. This notion grew and crystallized, thus adding to his natural north-country conceit. Further, he was delicate, suffered from some trouble in his chest, and was short in his temper. You will admit that Reggie had reason to call his new accountant a natural curiosity. The two men failed to hit it off at all. Riley considered Reggie a wild, feather-headed idiot, given to heaven only knew what dissipation in low places called messes, and totally unfit for the serious and solemn vocation of banking. He could never get over Reggie's look of youth and you-be-damned air, and he couldn't understand Reggie's friends, clean-built, careless men in the army, who rode over to big Sunday breakfasts at the bank, and told sultry stories till Riley got up and left the room. Riley was always showing Reggie how the business ought to be conducted, and Reggie had more than once to remind him that seven years' limited experience between Huddersfield and Beverly did not qualify a man to steer a big up-country business. Then Riley sulked and referred to himself as a pillar of the bank and a cherished friend of the directors, and Reggie tore his hair. If a man's English subordinates fail him in this country, he comes to a hard time indeed, for native help with strict limitations. In the winter Riley went sick for weeks at a time with his lung complaint, and this threw more work on Reggie, but he preferred it to the everlasting friction when Riley was well. One of the travelling inspectors of the bank discovered these collapses, and reported them to the directors. Now Riley had been foisted on the bank by an M.P., who wanted the support of Riley's father, who again was anxious to get his son out to a warmer climate because of those lungs. The M.P. had an interest in the bank, but one of the directors wanted to advance a nominee of his own, and after Riley's father had died, he made the rest of the board see that an accountant who was sick for half the year had better give place to a healthy man. If Riley had known the real story of his appointment, he might have behaved better, but knowing nothing, his stretches of sickness alternated with restless, persistent, meddling irritation of Reggie, and all the hundred ways in which conceit in a subordinate situation can find play. Reggie used to call him striking and hair-curling names behind his back, as a relief to his own feelings, but he never abused him to his face, because he said, Riley is such a frail beast that half of his loathsome conceit is due to pains in his chest. Late one April, Riley went very sick indeed. The doctor punched him and thumped him and told him he would be better before long. Then the doctor went to Reggie and said, Do you know how sick your accountant is? No, said Reggie. 